This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. It's the year 2021. A Utahraptor dinosaur comes back from the dead to warn humanity of an impending extinction. Listen up people. I know a thing or two about extinction. And let me tell you. And you'd kind of think this would be obvious. Going extinct is a bad thing. And driving yourselves extinct in 70 million years, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. At least we had an asteroid. What's your excuse? You're headed for a climate disaster, and yet every year governments spend hundreds of billions of public funds on fossil fuel subsidies. Imagine if we had spent hundreds of billions per year subsidizing giant meteors. That's what you're doing right now. Think of all the other things you could do with that money. Around the world people are living in poverty. Don't you think helping them would make more sense than, I don't know, paying for the demise of your entire species? This United Nations ad highlights the biggest irony of our times. How we humans are sponsoring our own extinction. The world spends an astounding 423 billion dollars annually to subsidize fossil fuels for consumers. To put things in perspective, this is four times the amount being called for to help poor countries tackle the climate crisis. One of the sticking points of the 26th edition of the Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, popularly referred to as COP26. The conference is happening after a 2-year gap due to the COVID-19 pandemic. 197 states and over 120 world leaders met in Glasgow for what is seen as the most important meeting on climate change. America's climate envoy John Kerry called the summit the last best hope for the world to get its act together. Studies show that we will have more droughts and heat waves as temperature continues to rise. Global sea levels are projected to rise another 1 to 8 feet by the year 2100. The Arctic Ocean is expected to become essentially ice-free in summer before mid-century. We don't even have to look that far. Climate change is no longer restricted to textbooks. It is happening in real time. Australian forest fires, drought in East Africa, floods in South Asia, these are all signs that we are running out of time. From the Economic Times, I'm Rachita Prasad and this is the Morning Brief. It's Tuesday, 9th November, and we are 3 days away from the conclusion of COP26. In this episode, we have joining us from COP26 in Glasgow, my colleague from ET, Urmi Goswami, and Renew Power founder and chairman Sumanth Sinha. But before we chat with Urmi and Sumanth, let's hear what COP26 president Alok Sharma said in his opening speech at Glasgow. And the IPCC report in August was a wake-up call for all of us. It made clear that the lights are flashing red on the climate dashboard. That report, agreed by 195 governments, makes clear that human activity is unequivocally the cause of global warming. And we know that the window to keep 1.5 degrees within reach is closing. 
I've been humbled to speak over this year with communities devastated by climate change. On a visit to Jomsom in Nepal in the Hindukush region, I spoke to communities literally displaced from their homes from a combination of droughts and floods. In Barbuda, I met communities still suffering from the ravages of Hurricane Irma four years ago. I've spoken to the communities in East Africa fighting plagues of locusts spawned by climate change. And earlier this month, I spoke to a group of women in Madagascar, determinedly coping with what some describe as the first climate-induced famine in the world. Friends, in each of our countries, we are seeing the devastating impact of a changing climate. Floods, cyclones, wildfires, record temperatures. And we know that our shared planet is changing for the worse. Let's go over to my colleague Urmi Goswami. Urmi has been writing on environment, sustainable development, climate change and the science and politics of it for a decade. She has been in Glasgow since the conference started on October 31st. With more than a week over at the conference, I asked her what the report card for COP26 looked like. So the conference started off with the World Leaders Summit segment, which is uh, something they, they had done in Paris as well. Get all the world leaders, 120 of them came. Uh, China wasn't here, but otherwise all the big regions were here. Uh, with the idea that they will make announcements, they will have a message that will give the set the tone for the negotiators and for the ministers that we mean business and we uh, want to get things done. Because that doesn't mean that countries don't have issues or countries uh, won't have special requests. It just means that we are, we are working towards a solution and we are committed to working towards a solution. The nitty-gritty problems remain, but what has happened till now is that there has been something of, or let's say, a more uh, positive movement uh, than before. But, you know, as they say, two weeks is a long time and things will get hectic. And we don't know what the red lines will be. But yes, the political momentum has been set. It's interesting that you point out uh, how the political momentum has been set. And, you know, while the nitty gritties are yet to be finalized, there is a broader consensus building. Uh, you know, one of the ongoing issues when we talk about climate change is that who will bear the burden of it? I mean, the developed countries keep, uh, it seems that they keep dictating the terms while the developing nations have been saying that it has to be more collaborative. What has been India's message to the developed nations regarding, you know, the compensation they must provide to developing nations to meet their climate goals? Uh, is there a clear uh, message being sent across to developed nations on that front? The truth is that even developing countries don't deny the fact that they too will have to do their bit because the problem has gone beyond the handling of say, 40-odd developed countries who have benefited most from the fossil fuel culture, from the culture that allowed for so much emissions to happen. But at the same time, uh, countries like India, uh, China, uh, South Africa, Indonesia, Vietnam, they have stepped up 
I would be a little hesitant to use the word compensation because that that drives the lawyers who are plentiful in the system a little uh, sort of nervous. Uh, but yes, there is. I think a better word than compensation would be the responsibility. Those countries that benefited from a fossil fuel culture that allowed for not only the basis of their wealth but also the the problems that we face today in terms of the emissions, which are testing planetary boundaries have to do their bit. Now, what is their bit? Their bit is to support developing countries uh, to do what they say, what they are taking on. India too is vulnerable. But say it's small island states, uh, which are definitely more vulnerable, are also doing their bit. They're showing, uh, they are showing ambition. They are showing responsibility. But how do they live up to their responsibility? And that can only happen with support, whether it's finance, and or technology and or capacity building uh, to use that money, to use the technology better. And as you know, that Prime Minister Modi made the announcement setting the number of $1 trillion that developed countries should provide for developing countries. That's a number that was first floated by the Africa Group. The Africa Group floated a number of $1.3 trillion. There is a needs-based assessment that also puts, it, puts the requirements of developing countries in the trillions. So clearly, finance is that that question that remains alive and contentious. And we also understand, uh, in all honesty, that all that money cannot be coming from treasuries across the world. It has to be about leveraging private. But then how do you leverage the private in, in places where private money doesn't want to go, whether it's in terms of adaptation or in terms of least developed countries where the you know, private finances don't want to go because it's not worth the risk. So there are all those questions that need to be dealt with. Then need, there has to be an honest conversation about these things and, and an effort to find an honest solution and the rules of that solution. President Biden announcing tougher regulations on emissions from American oil and gas wells. It's just one of the new proposals from the COP26 climate summit. And it's not just the environment these rules could impact. There's huge implications for the markets, too. India's war cry for the battle against climate change incorporates the claims of the developing world that its developed counterparts have been shifting their goalposts in the various rounds of talks to build a global consensus, right from the Kyoto Protocol to the Paris Agreement. Boris Johnson said that bold compromises and ambitious commitments are needed to tackle climate change, but Labour says the world is far off where it needs to be to keep temperature targets in reach. On the one hand, we have world leaders making big commitments. Companies and investors focusing on environment, social and governance or ESG parameters. On the other hand, we have protesters, many of whom from Gen Z are dismissing it as lip service. The irony that the world leaders burn tons of fossil fuels to convene and discuss climate change isn't lost on the protesters. So let's take a step back to understand where we stand right now and how much an initiative like this conference helped. I spoke to Sumant Sinha, who has emerged as one of the mascots of green energy in India, especially after the Nasdaq listing of his company, Renew Power. Sumant, this is the 26th edition of the COP meetings. At the time of the first COP way back in 1994, global warming was seen more as a textbook subject. Now it's a reality. What has this group achieved in all these years? That's a great question, uh, Rachita. 
And um, it is uh, a tough one to answer uh, because uh, on the one hand, a lot has been done in the sense of really uh, moving forward in humanity's understanding of a climate change, uh, recognizing it, agreeing on it, uh, and then trying to understand what level of climate change would cause what sorts of impacts. And then lastly, what needs to be done about it? This is something that has taken, you can argue, 25, 26 years for all the countries of the world and civil society and multilateral institutions to better understand and figure out. Now, could this, could this have been done sooner? Uh, perhaps you might argue that, yes, it might have been uh, possible. But when you have to take 190 countries on board with you and move forward in a consensus-based manner, then it has been absolutely essential to have these conference of parties happening every year, have the dialogue, have the discussion, get to common understandings of way forward uh, and of the problem, and on a, on a collaborative overall consensus basis, take forward-looking steps. So I think that's really been the value of, uh, COP, of the COPs. And, um, uh, and as I said, it could have been done faster, but look, I think it's, it's good that we are where we are at least. And the most important thing is that right now, as per the UNFCC report, we are heading for a 2.7 degrees centigrade temperature change. We've already crossed one degree, we're heading for 2.7, and we need to bend the curve down to 1.5, and that requires a lot of extra action on the part of countries. That's that's actually the most important point here, and uh, it's uh, actually very alarming. India has had a very interesting journey with this conference because uh, in the last few years, uh, the com country has uh, gained a more prominent position in terms of what it has committed and what uh, it is uh, kind of indicating that it will commit. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has committed uh, that uh, we will uh, cut emission to net zero by 2070. Now, again, uh, mixed reactions to that, uh, you know, uh, this is 20 years after the goal set by US and Euro. Even China has a 2060 commitment. Uh, in your view, what I want to understand is that as the world's fourth biggest emitter of carbon dioxide right now, is this goal achievable and what could be the economic cost of it? Now, look, 50 years is a long time. 2021 to 2070, you know, lots of new technologies, new technologies will emerge lots of new opportunities of cutting carbon will emerge. And uh, so therefore, I feel very confident that a 2070 number is eminently achievable, especially if other countries, the European Union and the US, which have given targets of 2050 and China, which is 2060, if they are able to achieve their targets, then necessarily new technologies would have had to emerge that have allowed them to meet those targets. And those same technologies will also help India in achieving our own target by 2070. So I think, therefore, um, you know, it is quite doable, if you ask me honestly. And given how technologies are moving in terms of decarbonizing electricity and more electrification and so on. So I think it's achievable. Now, uh, in terms of the cost, I frankly don't think that there will be a cost because the world is moving in this direction. Uh, India, in fact, should move faster than the rest of the world, simply because it allows us to front run in terms of setting up new technologies, new companies uh, and new sectors which we can then export to the rest of the world. So we actually should lean into this whole uh, climate change movement and uh, take advantage of it. And I think if we are able to do that, then in fact, there won't be a cost, there'll only be a benefit. So I am a big believer that 
this is a massive opportunity for a country like India. We must grab it with both hands. It's one of the defining new sectors of our time. And, uh, uh, and uh, you know, we can take advantage and actually create uh, industries and opportunities uh, that are going to be quite valuable in the future for the country. That's an interesting point that we can't just be a part of it. We can actually be leaders in this space. Uh, but the one transition that uh, the industry is seeing uh, globally is, uh, you know, the climate financing and how uh, investors in general are looking at ESG. Uh, do you think that will uh, drive the businesses to look more towards uh, 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 business models which are uh, uh, pro-environment and sustainable? Uh, of course, it will happen. You know, if you look at what's happening around the world, um, financial investors or institutional investors are moving with great speed towards ESG investing and penalizing companies that are not doing enough on ESG. In addition, there are now regulators all over the world that are specifying much higher levels of disclosure on what companies are doing on the ESG front, both positive and negative. So it's actually, and there are rating agencies that are coming out and uh, with, with ratings on ESG. So it is very soon going to become very obvious which companies are walking the talk and uh, which companies are not. And global capital will move rapidly in the direction of companies that are doing what they should be doing. And as a result of that, uh, I think that uh, that will be a big enabler in driving the whole um, uh, energy transition and the climate change mitigation efforts. So uh, therefore, I think that um, uh, this is an important area. Uh, if you look at multilateral climate financing, frankly, if you ask me, it's going to be a much smaller part of the overall financing mix. Uh, most of the financing is going to be commercial uh, in nature. And uh, that is really what we should be looking at. Mr. Sina, you have been in the clean energy space for a while and you saw potential here when the industry may not have been wholeheartedly convinced about uh, this concept. Is there a change in attitude in terms of how Indian companies are looking at uh, this whole concept and how Indian companies are now viewing a conference like COP26? So you're absolutely right. I think that uh, 10 years ago when I started our company, at that point, uh, the issue of climate change and taking steps uh, at a corporate level was not that uh, prominent. I th recently, I think with, with with all of the new conversations, talks, public uh, you know statements, media exposure, there is a lot more awareness. And as I said earlier, uh, financial market investors are really putting pressure on companies uh, now, and so the awareness has changed dramatically, and companies are looking much more seriously at this whole issue and trying to figure out what their risks are and what they need to do to position themselves for this new emerging reality. And uh, having said that, I think that a lot of companies are still scratching the surface. They still need to do a lot more. And therefore, over the next, uh, uh, I would say, a few years, you'll see a lot more action happening in this area. Uh, but at least the process has started. Worst 2070, नेट जीरो का लक्ष्य हासिल करेगा फ्रेंड्स ये सच्चाई हम सभी जानते हैं कि क्लाइमेट फाइनेंस को लेकर आज तक किए गए वायदे खोखले ही साबित हुए हैं जब हम सभी क्लाइमेट एक्शन पर अपने एंबिशन बढ़ा रहे हैं तब क्लाइमेट फाइनेंस पर विश्व के एंबिशन वहीं नहीं रह सकते जो पेरिस एग्रीमेंट के समय थे 
That was Prime Minister Narendra Modi at COP26, committing that India will cut emission to net zero by 2017. What will it take us to get there? And where can we go wrong now? I think mostly uh, India is doing all the right things. There is one area that we do need more work on, and that is the area of power sector reforms, because ultimately um, we need the electricity sector to become much bigger, much more robust. And, right, and, and that is really underpinned by reforms on the distribution side, which, as we all know in India, is an area that has been crying out for reforms for a very long time. And uh, that is an area that does need tremendous work because we need a, a huge amount of investment in the consumer-facing side of uh, the distribution sector, which, unfortunately, distribution utilities in India, given their poor financial health, are not able to make. And so it will at some point lead to a cap on how much renewables can be absorbed by the grid, which will not be positive. And it will also lead to lack of investment in uh, grid modernization, in the ability of people to put up rooftop solar solutions, in electric vehicle charging uh, infrastructure. So a whole host of things will get impacted by poor quality of distribution infrastructure. Prime Minister Modi promised that by 2030, India will have 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel energy. That's basically capacity. And if you look at the CA report, it says it actually uh, sort of uh, projects a non-fossil fuel capacity of 525. So it basically means it is it is something that the CEA has planned out for. To get to net zero, the first thing you really have to do is one, have a deeper penetration of electricity and ensure that it's clean electricity. You will also have to decarbonize your industrial sector, but we already remember that the Prime Minister's already set us off in on a green hydrogen program. And given that renewable energy costs, we have the lowest renewable energy costs. We have NTPC, RIL already sort of stepping up, Adani stepping into the green hydrogen space. We are hoping that that will get moving. So uh, we need strong power sector reforms. India's uh, efforts are ambitious, but uh, clearly there are huge uh, things that need to be done which require political will. And the other thing that needs to be done that requires a lot of designing work is effort sharing between states. As we all know that uh, our coal-bearing states are in the eastern region of the country, but they're also states that are less industrialized. So basically, a change in fuel, a change away uh, to a, a move to net zero is going to be very difficult for these states. Whereas the states in the West are more industrialized, they're the ones which are ahead on the renewable energy curve. So how do we how do we match that? What kind of effort sharing happens? We have to find a way that we use our resources more or more. Uh, efficiently. Now, there are bits and pieces of this that we have already done, like you had the scrappage policy, but you we need to do more. How India and other countries work towards keeping their commitment is a story in making. As we move closer to the end of COP26, we have activists like Greta Thunberg calling it a complete failure. It is not a secret that COP26 is a failure. It should be obvious that we cannot solve a crisis with the same methods that got us into it in the first place. This is no longer a climate conference. This is now a Global North Greenwash Festival. 
a two-week-long celebration of business as usual and blah, blah, blah. 40 countries like Indonesia, Poland, Vietnam pledged last Thursday to phase out the use of coal-fired power and stop building new power plants. But India, China and other top coal consumers stayed away from this commitment. The United States did not agree to stop coal development at home, but it has promised to halt overseas funding of oil, gas and coal. Are we preparing to fail even before we have started? What do you take away from this conference? It, it is not as dramatic and exciting as it should. It's, it would be if India stood up and said, OK, no more coal. But I think in, in, we have to look at India the way, say, we look at the European Union. You know, there are 27 member states. We have our states. We have to see some states move ahead. So we have to encourage states within our country who are ready to move ahead, move out of coal and say no new coal to do that. And then we have to enable those who, who are uh, the coal-bearing states as to how to move away from coal. This takes time. This takes planning. That's the beauty of, of, of a net zero target, I think. It kind of puts that you know frame. Now you have to start thinking within that frame I wouldn't be so despondent as to say that we have uh, it's failed before we have begun. But yes, it's it, could things have been better? Could things have been faster? Of course, it can always be. I think that now people just understand the urgency a lot more. The UNFCC uh, has done a tremendous amount of uh, very positive work in terms of coming out with reports that are unambiguous, that are based on science, and that all point in the same direction which is that we are on an unsustainable path to global warming, which is man-made, and we need to very, very urgently do something about it. That is, I think, a reality that now all policymakers have imbibed. Now it is just a question of are they able to do enough given their economic circumstances and given their political circumstances. But the realization is there, and I think that there is now a degree of mutual pressure that is being uh, exerted, which makes me a lot more optimistic about outcomes of uh, conferences like this, but equally by countries acting unilaterally in their home markets. Once upon a time, developing and developed nations fought against each other on every aspect of climate change. Fighting climate change is not cheap and the economics of it still remains a big issue. But at least now, all countries seem to be in the same corner acknowledging and accepting that we are running out of time and we need to take action now. The climate change discourse has come a long way. Slowly, but definitely, the stars seem to be aligning. Political will, technology and the economics of curbing climate change are moving in the right direction. It's a good start, but we have a long way to go to ensure that we don't share the same fate as the dinosaur making the guest appearance at the UN meet. I'm Rachita Prasad and you've been listening to The Morning Brief. This episode was edited and coordinated by Nehal Chalyawala. Special thanks to Bhavya Dilip Kumar for assisting in recordings. The sound editing was done by Varun Kapahi and the episode was produced by Swati Joshi. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. We look forward to your feedback. Write to us at themorningbrief at timesgroup.com And if you did like this episode, please do share it on social media. The Morning Brief drops every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday. 
Thank you for listening and have a great day. All edited sound clips used in this episode belong to their respective owners. Credits mentioned in the description.